is our king forever because of his grace to us, and we're happily uh, kingdoms of his, uh, citizens of his kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, we're again there this morning. Matthew chapter 4, and located in that uh, chapter, the 12th verse, is where we will begin. I'll read the scripture text here in a moment, allow you to turn to that place if you haven't found it already, and then we will launch into the exposition of the uh, verses under consideration for this Lord's Day, which is a, a privilege that belongs to us to be able to be here and to uh, hear the word of living God, to praise him together, wherever we might be. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, text reads as follows. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun, Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray you use your word, which is living and active, your truth to reprove and encourage and teach and instruct and direct all that you choose to do through it this hour. Use this speaker, your servant, indeed your slave, to do the work that you've called him to do. Make it fruitful in the hearers' lives across the board. And we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm entitling these uh, verses, Light Dawns in the Darkness. Light and darkness are commonly used symbols in Scripture. If you've spent any time in the Word of God, and I'm sure you have, you recognize what I'm saying is true. Light stands for truth, revelation, holiness, and salvation. Darkness, on the other hand, represents lies, spiritual ignorance, Satan, the fallen world, all of that. But into the darkness of human existence, Jesus came. He said, I am the light of the world. His very nature and character is light. With his coming came the ultimate expression of divine revelation, ultimate expression of holiness and saving truth to people living in darkness. We once were among those people. We once were uh, living in darkness. We once were separated from him but according to first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4 it says about us but you brethren are not in darkness now as ephesians 5 8 states about us we are light in the lord our spiritual condition was profoundly and eternally transformed by the supernatural work of the lord he delivered us from the darkness of sin and rebellion in his mercy and his grace he delivered us from our sin, and he has made us light in the Lord. In fact, we have the light of salvation, and that is no small thing. That is a great thing, an amazing thing. 
And we need to remember and praise him always for what he did for us. Jesus is public ministry that is uh, described here in part by Matthew came for that very purpose he came to deliver the light of salvation to be to people who were sin darkened a condition you need to understand like us in our condition like in them in their time were powerless to extricate themselves from no one has the power the authority the ability whatsoever to deliver him or herself from the clutches of sin and satan and in the throes of spiritual darkness in the text before us in fact is what Matthew reports the ministry of Jesus to sin darkened people he informs us that Jesus ministered in Galilee in fact and his headquarters was in a portion of Galilee in a place called Capernaum our Lord in fact made Capernaum his home base it was his new hometown his home base in fact home base will be our heading for verses 12 and 13 we note that up to this point in Matthew's gospel all was introduction Matthew passes over many things uh, from Jesus's earlier work in in Judea and Galilee you wouldn't know that unless you uh, sought to harmonize the gospels and you would see before you get here that Jesus had done work here prior to what Matthew reports for instance our Lord's first miracle was in Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine at a wedding you recall that also it was in Galilee where Jesus talked to a man named Nicodemus about the new birth you say wow why is that why does Matthew skip over that I'm going to tell you why because he didn't write chronologically but he wrote topically and here in verse 12 he begins on an unhappy note he tells us the reality about John John the Baptist the one who had baptized Jesus Messiah this John had been taken into custody stopped there at the comma for a moment John was a wonderful man, the greatest man who ever lived up to that time, Jesus said. He was a man who was bold and fearless, and he approached Herod Antipas, who had married wrongly in violation of the word of God, and told him your marriage was unlawful, and that incensed Herod Antipas, and of course that landed John in custody, and later on he died, was murdered, put to death, but that's for later. But at this point uh, in John's life, it says in the bottom of the verse, he, speaking of Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. He did not do so, as you might suspect, out of fear. Jesus didn't fear anybody. Herod Antipas, in fact, had control of Galilee as well, so withdrawing to that place would not have guaranteed Jesus' protection if that's what he was seeking. No, that's not it at all. Do keep this in mind about Jesus' life and his ministry. He lived every moment of his life by the Father's will and on the Father's timetable. The Father scheduled it all meticulously. We often read in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus said in one occasion, my hour has not yet come. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, we hear these words, his hour has not come. Just God was in control. <laughs> every aspect, every step of the way, none of it was out of control. 
the enemies of Christ, enemies of God that didn't dictate what would happen. You see in verse 13 that Jesus left Nazareth, his former hometown. He left there. He was rejected by his hometown people. He had entered a synagogue, as you recall, on one occasion, and uh, he, he was asked to stand to read. And he stood and found the place, read from Isaiah 61, and let the people know that the scripture had been fulfilled that day in their hearing. They were looking at the object of that prophecy from Isaiah 61, right there in their town. Jesus goes on to tell them, You'll read the count there in Gospel of Luke. Don't turn there now, but for later, he lets them know that uh, in the time of famine, there were many widows, but God sent Elijah to a Gentile woman. God also sent, uh, healed, uh, rather, a Gentile man named Naaman, Syrian to be precise. That set those people off. That made them angry with Gentiles. And they sought to kill Jesus. They sought to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. But the remarkable reality about it was this, that he passed through that crowd unharmed. Jesus was on God's schedule. God was in control, even in a case like that. So Jesus goes on and he settled in Capernaum. Capernaum. 9-1 of Matthew lets us know that was his place, his city. It was his new hometown. It was the base of his ministry operation. What Jesus would do, he would itinerate around and preaching and teaching and then return back there. And Peter, in fact, lived there. Matthew gives us his geography, the geography of Capernaum. Uh, it says in verse 13, which is by the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was on the northern shore of the sea. It was a thriving uh, place for fishing. Fishing industry was going on there. And if you look down in verse 18, you'll see something in Matthew 18, chapter 4. Now as Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting net, a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. They were engaged in that business, as you know. So by the Sea of Galilee. Further, a geographical note, which will help us understand what's going on here in light of our, <laughs> our subject. In the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. Uh, Naphtali. Hmm. Um, Zebulon and Naphtali are the names of two of the tribes of Israel, as you may recall. Uh, their names derive from two of Jacob's sons. Zebulun was the sixth son of Leah, uh, Jacob's first wife, <laughs> the wife that was unloved. Naphtali was uh, Jacob's son by his wife Rachel's maid Bilhah. The descendants of these two brothers that are just named inherited the region that they inherited it in which are called by those names they uh, received an allotment in that northern part of uh, Israel um, and the land of promise was distributed under Joshua after the conquest as you recall so that's where we are that's the location 
And that was Jesus' home base to, for the duration of his ministry in the area of Galilee. Now, those people who lived there were in the dark. And that's why I call it next heading, people in darkness. Jesus went there, you notice in verse 14, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Our Lord's move to that region was not, therefore, arbitrary, nor was it accidental. The text tells us uh, it was to fulfill Scripture. Jesus' settling there fulfilled a prophecy of Isaiah made in the 8th century B.C., 700 some odd years prior to the actual fulfillment of it. Think about that. Something was stated all those years ago, God was going to do eight centuries later, seven centuries later. The fulfillment of Scripture shows the trustworthiness of the Bible. It demonstrates that the Bible is the Word of God and that believers have all the more reason to have confidence in it. In verse 15, it elaborates the uh, prophecy for us. The text is uh, from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You should see it there. Now, in this verse, verse 15, you see those words, Galilee of the Gentiles. The population was predominantly Gentile. This is in northern Israel. But the predominance of the population was not Jewish, but Gentile. There are a lot of people there, relatively speaking. Um, in fact, Josephus, you remember him, the first century historian? He was also a military commander. And Josephus said there were 204 cities in this area, more than 15,000 inhabitants. And since he was the military commander of the region, he would know. So you know where it is, but there's a backstory that explains something about these people, why I'm calling the people in darkness. There's a backstory. We need to know what the backstory is. It goes all the way back, in fact, to the time of the conquest and thereafter. The backstory is one of sin and rebellion. You know that God has said to his people Israel, when you go into the promised land, you to exterminate those individuals who were there, the Canaanites. Get rid of them, drive them out. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali failed to expel the Canaanites from the promised land as God had ordered the nation of Israel to do. It was flat out a failure of faith and obedience. God had commanded them to do it. They should have done it. They should have believed God and moved them out. And God had very good reason for them to do it. Because they failed, there were consequences that left negative spiritual realities as sin and will do. You cannot sin and not experience some negative consequences. Isn't that right? What do they do? You think, since they didn't expel them, I'm going to tell you what men do, and this is historically uh, true for men. Whenever men meet, they mix their blood. It's true. 
there was intermarriage between the covenant people of God, Israel, and the godless, idolatrous, immoral Canaanites. And you do need to understand they've been called the Canaanites, those people who are the prior occupants of the promised land. They were a moral cancer on the world. They were outrageously wicked. Leviticus uh, 18, for example, you read all the prohibitions relating to marriage and sex is listed there, and you'll see, wow, how could anybody do that? The Canaanites did. What God prohibited in the Mosaic Covenant, he said, don't you do that. That's what the Canaanites did. They were depraved. And so God's judgment was to fall upon them, and Israel was to be the instrument. But Israel, like these two tribes, failed to follow him and do what he commanded. They were present there, and their evil influence on these two tribes and even others throughout the nation of Israel's obvious and it made them vulnerable to divine judgment divine judgment and it came it came this is how we get these Gentiles here some were remained there and then in the 8th century BC the king of Assyria took of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali into captivity and then he sent some Assyrians to replace them. You can read about the captivity in Second Corinthians, Second uh, Kings, excuse me, fifteen, verse twenty-nine. So some Assyrians he sent there from his own people and some non-Jews. And these factors left a spiritually weakened remnant of Jews. They didn't have the biblical traditions that they previously had and Judaism's um, traditions, all of that, and they became a people living in spiritual darkness of course it's the con- con- consequence of sin and that's why in verse 16 it says about them the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light sitting or residing in darkness they were living in spiritual darkness this is true for all unbelievers no matter where they live no matter their status in life, no matter how wealthy they are, how poor they are, or in between, it doesn't matter. Anybody who is without Christ, anybody who is sinful, anybody who is like this is living in darkness. And the, the perspective that is supremely important is not a human evaluation, but it is heaven's perspective. And this is God's perspective. They were sitting in darkness saw a great light saw that's a subjective reality of course um, Jesus' ministry they personally saw it these people were living in the land uh, shadow of death there was intense darkness think about the shadow of death intense darkness and upon them a light dawned how did it happen? In verse 23 of uh, Matthew chapter 4, it tells us Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The, the kingdom was present. The light was shining. And the reality of this prophecy is being fulfilled 
in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in their very presence. This issue of the Gentiles being reached there, it isn't new. Not only the text that we have here, but we see something in Isaiah chapter 42. It says this, a 42.6, a light to the Gentiles. A light to the Gentiles. That was in the Old Testament. God had always planned uh, to bring the light of salvation to Gentiles. This was no afterthought. It wasn't, uh, I said, God, you know, oh, by the way, there's some other people who are sinners and they need my help. No, no, no. That was from the very beginning. In Isaiah 49, it says this in verse 6. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let me tell you, that text, too, is like the one in Isaiah 42, talking to the servant of Yahweh. Who is the servant of Yahweh? None other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about him. And here he is saying, um, I'm not going to limit my salvation. It's too small of a thing for you. So beyond the, the Jews, I'm going to use you in the life, make you a light to the nations, Gentiles. So the servant's goal of salvation is not limited to Israel. <laughs> then you, you come forward these centuries and where's Jesus he's among Gentiles in addition to Jews and I love the reality because of who he is the father says it's a small thing you should, you should be my servant raise up the tribes of Jacob you need to have a greater goal than that if I may and indeed he did and we're sitting here today you're listening to me guess what uh, you're the recipient of that it's not by chance or happenstance that you're a believer God always intended that he intended to reach the Gentiles the gospels for all people to the Jew first and to the Greek it's the power of God and the salvation, isn't it? To everyone who believes. When you come to the New Testament, this is a familiar story. We think in terms of it primarily at Easter, uh, excuse me, um, Christmas. In Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Remember our Lord Jesus, an infant, and here the, uh, Luke's reporting. And He's presented in the temple. He goes there to the temple. Joseph and Mary take him there to do what was prescribed and carry out the custom of the law. Bottom of the verse. And but there is a man there named Simeon. He was an aged, devout, righteous man. Simeon. 
In verse 28, he took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. And look what he says in verse 30. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. He is talking about Jesus who is in his arms. He's looking at him. He says he embodies salvation. Which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Get this, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. A light of the revelation of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 2, verse 32. I'm going to tell you what, what this says to us is how gracious God is. That he goes to sinners who deserve nothing from him. Goes to Gentiles who deserve nothing from him. He goes to people who are sitting in darkness, deep darkness, through fault of their own, who deserve nothing from him. And he acts in grace. Jesus goes there in grace. Think about that. He acted in grace. In fact, reaching the Gentiles in particular, verses 15 and 16, which are the quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah, they are unique to Matthew. They do not appear in Mark, Luke, or John, writes James Montgomery Boyce. Boyce continues, this may be strange at first, since Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, yet we may remember that Matthew also links the coming of the Gentile wise men to his account of Jesus' birth, and that the book ends with Christ's command to take the Gospel to all the nations. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, gospels oriented to Jews speaks of God's grace to Gentiles Matthew is a Jew the gospel the universal outreach to all men and Jesus in his own ministry and life showed that his home base we've seen people in darkness what does he do he brings the light he brings the light you see in verse 17 that Jesus began to preach and say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in fact uh, that word preached is really a word uh, meaning herald an official proclamation he's proclaiming this is Jesus doing this think about this is Emmanuel God with us he is proclaiming to sinners repent now you need to understand genuine repentance includes a change of behavior some people's repentance as Spurgeon once remarked needs to be repented of because there has been no change 
If there is no change from sin to righteousness, if there is no turning away from darkness to light in practical terms, then that repentance indeed needs to be repented of. Because it wasn't genuine repentance. I'll give you an example I read this past week. It's told by R. Kent Hughes. He states. In 1986, one of the bloodiest shootouts in FBI history took place when two agents were killed and three wounded. The main assailant was William Maddox, a self-proclaimed born-again Christian who regularly attended a Baptist church where he often gave his testimony. Just a month before the shootout, he had been profiled in Christian Home Life, an evangelical family magazine. All the while, Maddox was committing numerous robberies of banks and armored cars. End of quote. I think we could say without fear of successful contradiction that William Maddox was self-deceived. He was really unrepentant. No one who has encountered Jesus Christ and his saving grace can continue to live a life of wanton sinfulness. Proclaiming himself to be a Christian, he was not. He was living a lie. Scripture is clear about those who enter the kingdom. And those who will inherit is in it it in all its fullness and eternity. There should never, ever, ever be any mistake about that. Uh, please, please, please. People want to justify their evil by saying, oh, it's all grace. Yes, grace to get you in, grace keeps you, but grace changes you too. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God. That is the fullness of it. They have not been truly born again. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have to repent. Turn away from your sin. The Bible is clear about this. And I'm amazed sometimes when I read some stories about some people and contemporary people who claim to be believers and how they live. I said, hmm. I'm like one pastor who's now deceased. He said he wouldn't want to be chained to them when they died. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5. For this you know, verse 5, Ephesians, with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be fooled. Repentance. 
changes real salvation changes people leave the darkness and we as believers who are genuine we've left the darkness true believers have been rescued from the domain of darkness Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 what do true believers do they follow him who said in John eight twelve. I quoted earlier in part I'm going to quote it in its entirety now I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life you won't walk in darkness if you're genuinely following Jesus You see, their life will reflect his life, his light, his holiness and character and behavior. Believers, in fact, are to walk um, as children of light. That's who we are. Our behavior is to be that way. And such behavior is called the fruit of light. Ephesians 5 9 says it this way for the fruit of light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth hey, that's why this guy William Maddox claimed to be a Christian and he's a bank robber <laughs> guy was self deceived no goodness no righteousness no truth and anybody who claims it Oh, I am a Christian and they live habitually, sinfully. They're still in the dark. Well, as we think about all of these things, what are we to do? We're to mimic our Lord Jesus in his graciousness to those who are in darkness. That's what we're to do. We are to mimic him. And we live in a dark culture spiritually and morally. I don't think anyone who has a biblical perspective can truly disagree with that. Our culture is dark. It's growing darker. And perhaps we even say it's growing darker exponentially. What do we do? Well, I'm going to tell you what we do. We do what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you what it doesn't tell us to do. You can't change spiritually dark people by means that are simply human-like education and politics. That doesn't change people. The Bible tells us to do what Jesus did. Preach the gospel. Well, in fact, we're not trying to change the culture. We're trying to change people. That's what our response is to be. May I give you a text? Okay. I was assuming you were answering. You just didn't want to say it out loud. For those of you at home, you I couldn't hear you, but I, I think you probably did. Philippians. Uh, our situation is not unique. People think Christians in our day, oh, you don't know, oh, please. We're not unique. Darkness has been in the world since the fall. Philippians chapter 2, what do you do? First of all, in in Philippians 2.14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
I don't know what your lot in life is, but don't grumble and complain because what you're doing, you're criticizing and speaking negatively, even in your own heart, against God who's ordered your life. You don't do that according to Philippians 2.14 so that you might do this, so that you may will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's you. That's your identity. We are lights in the world. The world is dark. And here we are light. Think about that as you move about uh, in the world and socially in the workplace in your family among lost people you are the light there verse 16 holding fast the word of life NAS says that like that I think a better rendering would be holding forth the word of life speaking of the gospel the gospel that's what we're to do. Like our Lord Jesus. Holding forth the gospel. Which will transform people when they believe. They're delivered from darkness to light. Their destiny is changed from damnation to salvation. That's our task. And we are the only ones that can do it. Because we're the ones who know the Savior. And we are to give the word of the gospel. That men may hear and believe. And that God will be their Lord. They will be in light. No matter how dark the night the light of the gospel can pierce it let us pray our God and our Father we thank you for um, the good news of the gospel of Christ for by it we have been rescued ourselves from sin and rebellion we belong to you because of your gracious work in our life through the ministry of the word of the gospel. Help us to be faithful as your people as opportunity presents itself, as we seek out opportunities to share the good news with people who are in this culture who are lost, dying, hell-bound. Grant us compassion and love for people like that so we may be your instruments of grace that the light may dawn in their personal darkness and they'll see the glory of of God in the face of Christ as you turn on the light in their hearts Lord we thank you for your great gracious work in the name of Christ I pray Amen